How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're talking about corporate sustainability, realizing that business as usual is simply not sustainable in the long run. Walmart and many other large corporations have programmed to reduce their energy use. They also promote cleaner products and healthier customers and employees. Those innovative efforts have driven down carbon pollution and added up to real savings for companies and consumers. At the same time, there's been an outbreak of greenwashing and consumers are confused about what is real and what is eco-veneer. Over the next hour, we'll discuss greenwashing, the greening of Walmart and other large corporations and with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. Joining us, we're pleased to have two experts on making capitalism more sustainable. Andrea Thomas is Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Walmart, and Aaron Kramer is CEO of Business for Social Responsibility, a consultant to Walmart and other companies like Target, Nike, and Best Buy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, so, Andrew Thomas, let's start with you and ask, uh, Walmart's gotten a lot of press uh, about its uh, sustainability efforts, and uh, why are you doing it? Is it really about saving money, or is it, is it about something more than that? Well, I think we start everything with our customer, and our um, mission as a company is saving people money so that they can live better. And I think there are many, many ways that you can save people money and many, many ways that you can help them live better. Um, sustainability really just came out of our efforts on both fronts, and it's something that um, from the very top of the company, so our CEO made a big commitment for, in behalf of the company in mm-hmm. October of 2005, that really right. set us down. Down the journey, and it wasn't just it would be nice for us to get involved. It was very specific. We need to work to get to 100% renewable energy, zero waste, and products that sustain people and the environment. So coming from the CEO level, um, being that aspirational from the very beginning, it actually is embedded in our culture, and it is a way that we can save our customers money, and it is also a way that we can be better stewards of the resources that we use to provide the products that we sell our customers. And people talk about carbon pollution or energy basically as a cost or a proxy for waste, that, that a lot of things are, it's, it's really a, you, another word for waste, and you're squeezing waste out of the system. Right, which fits right into what we call the productivity loop. I mean, we're all about taking costs out so that we can um, give our customers access to lower prices so that they can get what they need, and that helps us you know, grow the business. And the leverage or the size and scale helps us lower costs even more. So we call that the productivity loop, and sustainability is a really important part of that because it causes us to focus on the things that are adding costs that we can be more efficient in, and by doing that, it helps us save resources and and lower waste and lower energy uses and do all these things that are really great for the environment as well. So it's just more efficient all around. Uh, Aaron Kramer, uh, tell us what kind of impact Walmart has had on other corporations that are kind of obviously looking to Walmart as a leader, their size, but also trying to compete and differentiate with them in some way. Well, Walmart has had a huge impact. It's the world's largest retailer. And so if you go into a Walmart, you find many of the world's biggest brands are suppliers to Walmart. So you have companies that may do $80 billion in business in a given year, they're suppliers to Walmart. So when Walmart starts to ask questions about packaging, about the amount of water that's used uh, and, and so on, that has a ripple effect that magnifies the efforts of a lot of other companies. So that's, that's one way. The other way is that there is the power of, of example, and I think by elevating waste uh, to such uh, a prominent position in terms of how Walmart thinks about things, that is, it's not intended this way, but it's almost an advocacy role, and it mm-hmm. raises the awareness of this issue. After all, in America, we waste about a third of the energy that is generated, about a third of the food that is generated, and that also means that there's a lot of water that's wasted, and those are all things that have a, a hugely negative impact on the environment, 
But especially in a tight economy, it, it's sort of insane to be wasting. That's, that's also wasting money. Seems like it also had a cultural impact in corporate America by, you know, for some people, green was like an eco-fringe, lefty, liberal California thing, and Walmart made it okay to kind of (laughs) use a certain kind of language and talk about these things that actually is just smart business, Andrea. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that we did early on was um, invited people into the conversation that we normally weren't talking to. And so it was a pretty big deal for Walmart to have conversations with NGOs who weren't necessarily in the beginning advocates or or um, really supportive of what we were doing and, and we asked them because we just didn't know um, all the things that we could do and, and you know one of the questions that we would ask is how can we look at our business in a way that we can address some of the challenges and the things that uh, that you're concerned about and so they helped us in the first place come up with kind of those three areas of energy waste and products and then as mm-hmm. we've gotten more into it more specific they advise us on a regular basis now and and actually some of the big NGOs have people that live in Bentonville, Arkansas that are working on our project teams and that that was um, not something that we had been doing much of before that we're doing a lot more of now is just convening and having these discussions. Does that mean you listen to things that are sometimes hard to hear? Because Walmart, absolutely, I mean, billion-dollar companies, are, you know, genuflect in the presence of Walmart and so these are NGOs who might say you're doing, you gotta do more, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, I mean, the hard questions really help us, and we don't always have quick answers to the hard questions. We're working through a lot of complexity and a lot of challenges that we need to figure out. But they they hold us accountable, and actually they help us really be more credible within the business, having mm-hmm. that point of view, bring it into the business, helping the business understand if we don't address this issue, this is what that might look like. I mean, we talk a lot internally. What does it look like to have to feed? 9 billion people on the planet instead of 7 billion people on the planet. You know, what do, if you think about food security, if you think about, you know, some of the, the things, energy is a big thing. I was just in Africa a few weeks ago, and we were in one of our stores that's just a general merchandise store, and we were asking the store manager, you know, what are some things that, uh, that you need help on? And it was surprising to me, but energy, consistency of energy came up as a really big cha- uh, challenge in, uh, in Western Africa. Africa. And so there's a lot of really hard challenges out there that uh, that we're talking about and working on addressing. We've had those situations in California with brownouts, too, here. So it's, uh, we know what it's like yeah. to uh, have generators running in the hallways not that long ago. Uh, let's talk about consumer labeling. I think there's something like 400 consumer labels out there. Uh, you know, Aaron Kramer People gotta be confused. Are, are those labels helping anyone? Or are they making things? It's more information, but is it helpful? Uh, well, let's just say that the labels probably have room to grow in terms of their <laughs> impact on, on things. You know, think about uh, the average consumer is walking through a supermarket and, you know, he or she will take a matter of seconds to make a decision. And so, um, the opportunity to get into all of the wonky aspects of sustainability is just not going to reach the average person. People just don't have that kind of time. Um, so labels are important, but I also think that in 2013 we get information from multiple sources. And so there, there, there really are a thousand flowers that have bloomed in terms of the way to convey information that can be accessed with a, with a smartphone. You can you know, use uh, something like the Good Guide, and I know they've been here to talk to the Commonwealth Club. So there are a lot of different ways to make this information available, and I think that's uh, really important. And one of the things that Walmart's doing that a lot of other companies and a lot of NGOs are working on is coming up with a common way of measuring uh, the attributes of a given product. This is coming via the Sustainability Consortium, and that will give people more reliable information, which is also very important. But if it's not simple... I I personally think that it's not going to get as much resonance in the marketplace as we might like. Andrew Thomas, you get, does a retailer, does Walmart get into the thicket of, of consumer labels? What's greener and cleaner than, than another? Well, the way we've approached it is really through understanding the needs that our customers have. And in the U.S., we have about 140 million people that come into a Walmart every week. And so the people that we serve 
are at all ends, but usually kind of on a lower socioeconomic class. So they've got a lot of budget challenges. They're really worried about price. They're making decisions based on their budget, not necessarily based on um, factors, kind of, you know, broader factors that they would need to do research about. And so the way that we've really addressed it for them, um, they, and we've done research, they are interested in sustainability, but they can't afford to pay any more for something that is sustainable. So we've been looking at the products that we sell that they're already buying, and we've been working on ways to make all of the products that they buy more sustainable. And so that's really the work through the Sustainability Consortium has been about understanding the sustainability impact of all the products that we sell in our store, providing that information to our buyers so as they make the um, assortment choices, they're thinking about things that they can do that apply size and scale to sustainability metrics that can make an even bigger impact that doesn't yet require it to come back down to a particular choice with um, the customer choosing A over B. Because it gets really complicated, just, and I won't go too technical into this, but just from a claims perspective, documenting how product A performs versus product B is not a simple exercise. And so the cost and the complexity of doing that, I think at some point will um, be something that customers will want, but now there's so much that you can do just through um, thinking about sustainability in all products supply chains. So let's take a specific example. I don't know. I, you know, I bought uh, some Barbie things not too long ago, and it came with a, you know, a ton of cardboard packaging <laughs> and lots of little, you know, lots of plastic and those annoying little ties all over the piece of furniture and the legs. So you, you say like, hey, make that less uh, sort of less waste, less packaging in there. Do so you, you one think? specific thing that we did on that not too long ago is we told our suppliers those twist ties, those wire twist ties can't be recycled and get rid of them. Nobody likes some, right? They poke you, they're hard to open. So find another way to secure the product without using wire twist ties. And so now the products, and it takes a while to kind of work through the supply chain, but the products will no longer have twist ties and we've saved, um, I think they did the calculation that um, you could wrap the twist ties around the earth eight times is what we saved from going into landfills by making that uh, that move. So that's one small example. Computers is a great example. So our computer buyer, she identified as she was looking at the assortment for holiday that most of the computers had a function where you could go and put it to sleep and save energy, but that function wasn't turned on. You had to go in and do it yourself. You don't mean kill it. You um, not, like, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, just right, put yeah. it to sleep yeah. And so um, it, it, when you're not using it. And so she went and made that the default so that you could still go in and tell it what time frame that you wanted so you could set it to anything you wanted, but most people weren't setting it. So if you made the default the energy-saving mode as opposed to requiring them to add the energy-saving mode, you could save a lot of energy. And so that was something that they did for holiday this year. And that was through the energy use being um, identified through the Sustainability Consortium that idle energy use is a big opportunity. And once you could see that, it was a pretty easy change to make. If you're just joining us, we're talking about sustainable capitalism at Climate One today. Our guest is Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Walmart, and Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, are there any products that Walmart just won't sell because they're inherently unsustainable? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm sure there are. I think, you know, the buyer really looks at a lot of different factors as they think about um, uh, what assortment they want to have. And we are very um, close to the regulations that are out there and understanding, you know, what's what the government is saying is safe, is not safe. And there are things that we try to get ahead of and providing safe alternatives before it gets to the point that the government says this is not safe. So I think sustainability and environmental impact is a factor. It's not the only factor at this point. And so the, um, and I'll give you 
you an example in a second. Our approach would be more to make it more sustainable. So fisheries, um, seafood is a really great example of this. So when we very first started, we... Um, we made a commitment that that we would only purchase seafood that was certified by the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, and so then we went out there and we figured out that a lot of stores wouldn't have any seafood in them because there wasn't enough seafood. The, the amount of seafood that the Marine Stewardship Council could certify, um, we had a much greater supply of that. So then we went and said, okay, any certification will um, go through. So we'll expand that out, not just MSC certified, but any certification. And still, we couldn't supply the need that our customers had. So then we went back and said, okay, we're going to require every fishery that we supply from in the U.S. to have a fishery improvement plan. Because if you just stop purchasing from somebody, there is no incentive for them to get better. And so we asked, mm-hmm. and, and we got these last summer, all of the fisheries now have a fishery improvement plan that we're holding them accountable to making improvements. So that lifts the whole as opposed to focusing on just a piece of it. And so that is um, our approach for the most part. What we're trying to do is lift the whole or do the thing that will make the greatest impact. To steer people in a certain direction. What I was thinking of was something like uh, bottled water that comes from a small island in the Pacific and it's put in plastic bottles and put on diesel-powered boats and then on diesel-powered trucks and put in refrigerators that are probably running on coal electricity. And it's like, maybe you can make, maybe Walmart can make that sustainable, <laughs> but that seems like something that's just you know, extracting water from an island in the Pacific and, and shipping around the world and burning lots of carbon pollution. So those sound really expensive, to do all of that, so I'm not sure that that was something that we would would carry or not. I think so you that, don't carry Fiji water. So I don't know. <laughs> I I knew I knew the one you were talking about. Um, you know, I, I think that um, our approach has been we still need to offer our customers choices and consumers buy what they buy and we go in and when we're not trying to tell them that they can only buy one thing versus another thing because that's not the role as a retailer that we have the role that we have is to serve our customers and and so whether a particular item I mean we're serving a large group of customers and so whether it's big enough and it has the right cost associated with it I, I don't know in that particular example but um, at this point sustainability is a factor. If there is a popular item that people are purchasing, we'll sell that item, but we'll also sell other items so that they can have choices. And we are working on making all of them, you know, bringing out the issues in particular supply chains so that the supplier has to has to talk about why they do it that way. Aaron Kramer, let's get you on this, on, on companies leading their customers. Obviously, they spend a lot of money shaping behavior through advertising, or do they sort of follow their customers? Different companies take different approaches to, to this. There's a concept of choice editing, which, which relates mm-hmm. to food. How do you stock certain things that try to either push or encourage consumers to make healthier choices and in some cases that works, and in some cases uh, that that doesn't work. I think that ultimately the best solution is going to be by making the concept of quality stand for sustainability as well. And you see changing values in society and changing uh, changing tastes in society. You know, the the amount of of course of tobacco use has plummeted, and and food waste I think is another example of a concept that may become as unacceptable as tobacco, as cigarettes are in, in many places. So I think there, there is a role to play. And in the meantime, um, driving down the impact of these various products is absolutely crucial. And some of that um, is about educating consumers. And that's really tricky. So Unilever has tried to reduce the, the impact of its shampoo. Unilever has the biggest market share in the U.S. for shampoo. And they've determined that, that the biggest uh, piece of, of, of the footprint for shampoo is the length of a shower. The average shower in America takes is 12 minutes long, which shocked me when I heard this because I'm not sure I spend more than that in a week, and I'm very clean. You're not, a, te- you're not a teenager <laughs> anymore, yeah, that's no, why. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, so, so, but getting those behaviors to change is very, very difficult. And so companies, um, I think, try to do this. They see the opportunities, but sometimes you're getting into deeply entrenched behaviors. Sometimes 
They're very culturally resonant and, and so on. And so um, doing what you can in the supply chain is very important, and finding ways to educate consumers is crucial because the, the good news here is that very often uh, consumers can save money by thinking more about sustainability. It certainly is true when it comes to washing in cold water as opposed to hot water. It's true when it comes to showers, and those are all things that drive down the impacts of everyday products in a way that's really meaningful. Andrew, let's get you that on the extent to which you shape consumer behavior. You might call mm-hmm. it education or shaping behavior. Right. So I'll give you a specific example. Cold water wash is something that, that has come up. If you wash your clothes in cold water instead of hot water, you can save money. There's uh, quite a bit of, uh, of environmental impact. So a couple of things that we've done. First, we've got quite a few private branded um, apparel items in our stores. And most of the industry standard at the time was to, to – um, put from a labeling standpoint, they were over-labeling wash in hot water. So they switched the labels, and in about 74% of the apparel items, they were able to change the label to say um, manufacturer recommended to uh, wash in cold water. We also started carrying cold water-specific detergents that had been formulated for cold water. We didn't remove the ones that worked in hot water, but um, we we started carrying the, the cold water items. And so those are ways that we can suggest behaviors. Um, we would not run an advertising campaign to tell you how to wash your clothes. That's just not the role of the retailer. We'll sell you um, the items that, that you want to buy. But that is a way that you can start to shape behavior because, um, you know, through through the labeling or through that type of thing. I think uh, this is an old example, but just the compact uh-huh. uh, laundry detergents, right. taking out the water. That was an education um, campaign that we just, on the shelf, we just needed to inform people it looks half the size. It washes an equal number of clothing. And, and that's something that went pretty well in the U.S. that's requiring a little bit more education in other parts of the world, but clearly something that um, that is beneficial from an environmental standpoint and doesn't change the efficacy or the quality of the product. And- and there's product innovation that's happening. You know, across town, Levi's has produced its so-called waterless jeans, which mm-hmm, right. you don't have to wash at all. And that, of course, drives down, or for a long time, and that drives down uh, a big uh, amount of impact. We were talking beforehand about a new thermostat that's being developed by the designer of the iPod that is going to make it a lot easier and, and in fact, fun uh, to adjust the temperature in your home. So these are all mm-hmm. product innovations, and, and it, they demonstrate, again, that Ultimately, sustainability is about, it's about better, it's not about less. And I, I think that's not a concept that most consumers have understood traditionally, but I think it's getting wider play, and, and that's how we make more progress. Right. We've been so conditioned that more is better, bigger is better, uh, that uh, buying that concentrated detergent doesn't mean we're getting, le- our clothes are going to be less clean somehow. Clean, right. One of your, uh, the biggest areas for energy reduction is, is lighting, buildings, and Walmart did a big push on moving to compact fluorescent light bulbs, and now the new thing is is LED lighting. Uh, they're very expensive, uh, They're but they're coming down. They last forever. Mm-hmm. People joke about putting them in their wills because they'll last uh, seriously yeah. like 30 or 40 years if you look at how... And so the question for someone like Walmart is, well, you're thinking you're probably going to sell fewer. fewer. LED, yes. Maybe you'll make more money up front, so it might front load your earnings, but you're not going to get people coming back buying light bulbs every year or so because they're not going to come back for another 40 years to buy right. another light bulb. Right. Well, the same thing happened with compact fluorescent light bulbs. So at the time that those came out, they lasted much longer than incandescent light bulbs, and we took that on as a product that we really helped educate mm-hmm. and push and, right. and let our customers know about that. And LEDs will be in the same type of uh, type of vein, we're getting a lot of benefit from LEDs in our stores. And that's something that we've been able to do globally is really, um, we've set some recent uh, commitments with both energy efficiency and renewable energy. And LED lighting is something that um, that we've been able to roll out in parking lots and signage. And, and they started in freezer cases. And so that's an example of where a technology in one part of the world, we can move out to, to other parts of the world because um, it's something that helps us save energy. And did you say you're going to push, that Walmart will push 
LEDs as hard as they pushed on compact fluorescents? I didn't say that because I don't know the answer to that. I would need to talk to the light bulb buyer. But okay. I think it's a technology. Any technology that comes into the marketplace is evaluated based on consumer need. Um, I think that one of the challenges with complex compact fluorescence for if you're on a really, really tight budget, it might be difficult, the upfront investment, even though you can save and buy, you know, over the course of a year or two, make that up. If you're on a budget and you're worried about that week's, you know, what yeah. you're spending that week, that could be a little bit more challenging. And so those are the types of things that uh, we take into consideration as we think about the best ways to serve our customers. I went to the store to get a bunch of LEDs and it spent, and I pop, I have, still haven't told my wife how much I spent on those light bulbs. Yeah, uh, it can be a lot of money to. Yeah. to, to and uh, not all of our customers can do that in that yeah. um, in that way. Uh, let's talk about the store energy use. You mentioned sort of reducing the impact of energy use in, in Walmart stores. You also have a hundred stores in California with solar installations. That's a lot. Um, are the electric monopolies sort of looking at you saying, hey, you know, we want you to be a customer, not a competitor? What are they, how do they feel about that? Well, um, we've been working a lot in renewable energy all over the globe. And I think it's, um, it's interesting. We've got wind, we've got solar, we've got, um, a lot of different technologies that we're trying out. Out, and we're in a position now to start scaling those. And so um, those kinds of discussions, I mean, at this point now, um, we aren't using all of, or, or uh, solar can't support all of the energy needs of a store. So we're still on the grid. We're still buying from utilities. It's an interesting conversation that may come up as you start to have um, a higher percentage of your energy needs handled with on-site um, systems, but we think that that kind of pressure is good pressure. I mean, we're always trying to look um, to, to the future and see how can we leverage our size and scale to start kind of enabling things. And it's interesting because we had Solar City um, presented, and we had a big meeting where we we uh, talked about the goals that we had been uh, we had just made on energy. And one of the interesting things I didn't expect is a lot of our associates sent me an email saying, "Can you help us get solar?" energy for our homes because that wasn't something that was available in Arkansas at that time. And so that's something that we're looking at for our associates. So as people start to see the technologies being scaled and becoming affordable and accessible to them, that clearly is a business opportunity for us. Aaron Kramer? Well, I was going to say the same thing. And the retailer in the U.K., Marks & Spencer, is actually now in the energy business. And if the world is moving towards distributed energy where we're not just all passive consumers we actually are generating, whether it's through solar or something else, and providing that to the grid. That may well be a business opportunity for a retailer, also one that can help on financing exactly this point. Maybe you'll be in the business of financing those those light bulbs yeah. because that's a way to build a market. And so the best companies always think several steps ahead, and our energy system is changing. It's inevitably going to be changing with different uh, business models in addition to different technologies companies like Walmart that can help accelerate those changes and deliver better, cleaner, cheaper uh, uh, energy sources to customers, you're, it's creating a bigger bigger marketplace. Yeah. And it's interesting. I can give you an example. In Mexico, by the end of this year, we'll have um, 700 stores that will be powered by renewable energy at least 80%. And we've been able to do a lot of that through making longer-term commitments in power purchase agreements, which kind of helps enable the investment to happen. And that's moved so quickly in Mexico because the cost of energy in Mexico is, is much higher than the cost of of energy here in the U.S. So depending where you are around the world, the cost of energy really enables a lot of the um, a lot of the expansion and the innovation. And Walmart's made some very ambitious goals. That you can tell us about in terms of its future uh, uh, mix of brown versus clean energy. And it mm -hmm. seems to be that Walmart's betting that. Is it fair to say that brown energy prices will go up, particularly if there's a price on carbon pollution, and clean energy prices will we'll go, go down. down? I mean, is that 
simple as that? Well, so we we did some forecasting, and and it's awfully difficult to look ahead, you know, seven years and say this is what's going to happen. But we did our our best job forecasting both of those aspects, and we actually made a commitment that by the end of 2020, which is kind of this cycle of remodeling for for our stores, we'll have um, seven billion kilowatt hours of renewable energy that we either procure or um, you know somehow put into our system, which is a 600% increase over what we're doing today. So that's over seven years. That's a pretty big so commitment. I can't get my head around seven billion kilowatt, kilowatt hours. hours. Yeah, what does so, that mean? Um, two fossil fuel power plants would produce seven billion kilowatt hours. So that that's enough to take two fossil fuel um, power plants off the grid, or or it's enough roughly to power the city of Austin, Texas, for 18 months. So we did kind of a little bit of math on that. Aaron Kramer, the brown energy prices going up and green energy prices coming down. Let's, you know, what are you hearing that among other corporate energy users? Likely on both counts. And, and again, the best companies are already pricing in increased costs for carbon-based fuels, for traditional fuels, in, including the oil companies. So Shell has said quite publicly that when they look at new investments, they assume that uh, a ton of carbon will cost $40, and they make investment decisions based on that. Now, they're invested in oil and gas, but they also know that the cost of those carbon-based energy sources will be going up, and they don't feel that it's responsible financial decision-making, let alone sustainability decision-making, to ignore those things. It is highly likely that renewable sources will come down. We've seen the cost of solar come way down. Wind is is coming down. Natural gas, which is generally cleaner than than oil, has been coming down. These are things that are getting to scale. Change isn't linear. We don't know exactly when we'll get from point A to point B and how that will happen. We have to remember also that energy demand is growing very rapidly around the world as you know countries like Brazil and India and China start using more and more and more, and that is that creates upward pressure on every energy source. But I think the relative costs of you know brown versus versus green is changing and the best companies are factoring that in into all of their decision making. Well and we feel like um energy efficiency has to go hand in hand with renewable energy because if you're more efficient you're not buying as much. So um we also made a commitment to reduce our our um square foot usage of power by 20%. And when we looked at the renewable plus the efficiency, we're actually forecasting um, a savings of a billion dollars by 2020. That's a billion dollars a year by 2020 combining renewables with energy efficiency. And so we think it's it's more than just going to be neutral. We think there are ways and technology will help us uh, get there that it can be a cost savings. Things like skylights in stores, right? Get mm-hmm. natural lighting, you mm-hmm. need less electric lighting, simple things like that. Exactly. Uh, if you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One is Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Walmart, and Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility. I'm Greg Dalton. This all sounds very good, very positive, but is this change happening fast enough to bend the carbon curves as quickly as scientists say is necessary to avoid more extreme weather? Is it happening fast enough, Andrea Thomas? Um, I can tell you that... We are making a greater impact and we are looking at scaling. So I can just comment within, from a Walmart standpoint, um, we're moving as fast as we can. One of the big things that we've been able to do over the last three years is really bring to scale the sustainability consortium work on just understanding where we need to focus in the supply chain. And that's something that for us, when we look at our carbon footprint as a company, about 90% comes from the supply chains of the products that we sell. About 10% comes from the stores and even the um, transportation to to get from our distribution centers to the stores. So the supply chain is significant in that. And um, we are to a point that we do have um, an ability now for all of our buyers to have information. So it's part of the incentives. So part of their objectives now for all of our merchandising and sourcing organizations includes sustainability.
sustainability on those objectives. So is that fast enough? It's a lot faster and we're scaling it. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and I think there's a lot of factors at play. Much of it is our ability to reduce waste and be more efficient in producing what we're already producing. A lot of it is how developing countries develop and our ability. And, and you know, we've got stores in places like China and India and Africa, and that's part of what we're we're focusing on. But um, I don't know. That's a tough question to answer. I don't know if you have any insight, Aaron. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron is it happening <laughs> fast enough? The one word answer is no. I mean, and, and um, you know, a lot of great efforts from Walmart and, and many, many others. You know, last week was an interesting week. The, the unemployment rate came down to 7.5 percent in the United States. That's good. The Dow crossed 15,000. That's also good. But we crossed 400 parts per million in CO2 at the same time. And Which is a historic milestone, highest ever during human civilization. It's an abstract number, but it's basically a lot more than scientists say is safe. And, and we'll remember that number long after Dow 15,000. And, and we won't be able to maintain economic growth if the environment starts to get in the way. The estimates uh, about lost GDP in the U.S. due to the drought last summer was about 1% 1 of U.S. GDP. And that is basically the difference between an anemic recovery and a pretty strong recovery. And, by the way, would be very helpful for Walmart Mm -hmm. to have a stronger U.S. economy, more more people in the stores. So we're not making progress uh, fast enough. And we've made enormous human progress over the last generation, more people moving out of poverty than ever before in human history. But if we start to have more wild weather, if we start to have more disruption, if we run out of water in many places of the world, then the human development that comes along uh, with this whole discussion about the environment won't continue. And that will be a tragedy because we have it within our within our hands to, to change the, the direction, the trajectory that we're on. Which raises the whole notion of sustainable consumption. If more people buying more stuff, even if it is greener stuff and more efficient stuff, Ultimately, growth-based capitalism with more people wanting more stuff, is that really an oxymoron or, or, or even doable, Andrew Thomas? Well, that's a tough question for me because we're not going to turn anyone away who wants to come and buy stuff in our stores. Yes, right? Nor is any company. Nor is any right. company. So I, I think um, – it's interesting because we have a commitment to remove 20 million metric tons of greenhouse gas out of the environment. And so that's something that we've been working on for a few years. And, and it, it was tough in the beginning to get your arms around um, the the connection between activity and, you know, the impact um, to the environment. So the fact that we're measuring it now and we know where we are and we know the, the um, programs that we um, need to focus on, food waste is a huge one. And I think that benefits everybody. If we all think about from a food waste standpoint, what can we do just from a consumption? Because that one overlaps um, quite quite tightly with um, with obesity and with hunger even. So the whole food system is one that I think is an opportunity um, in the U.S. but globally for um, radical transformation for people to really think about. That has quite a big impact. One of the things that we've done is we're working more with local farmers and so we doubled the amount of, of produce that we were sourcing from local farmers in the last couple of years and um, there's a lot of benefits to that. It doesn't have to go as far. It's fresher because you can, um, there are places where they pick it in the morning and it's on our store shelves by that afternoon. And so obviously that only works in the season, but that's something that um, that we've worked really hard on and I think is a, is a great opportunity. So I think, you know, rethinking a lot of how we, um, how we produce things is something that needs to happen. I think, Consumer, we will always meet consumer demand, and if consumers start really um, thinking about how they're purchasing and how much they're wasting and how frequently they're purchasing things, I mean, that's something that we will absolutely address. Let's talk about the risk side of this. Uh, uh, Aaron mentioned uh, the drought earlier in the Midwest. We had Hurricane Sandy. 2012 was the hottest year on on record. what is the risk to Walmart's business from severe weather, from floods and droughts and that sort of thing? It's got to be bad for business. 
Oh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting because there are so many different places because we're not only just a global company, but we have a global supply chain. Um, we get impact whether it happens, you know, close by a store or further away than that. So we are looking at ways that we can really help mitigate that risk. And so food security is something that we look at um, a lot. I'll give you an example with Hurricane um, Sandy. We actually when power goes down in one of our stores, not only can't we help the people in the community when they need it the most, when they're going through a, a difficult challenge, but we have issues because there's product in the store that needs to be frozen, that needs to be refrigerated. And so we have um, fuel cells that we had put on as part of our, our sustainability initiative, and we had one of the stores that was impacted had a fuel cell, and it, it didn't lose power at all. So they were able to run and service the customers through all of the the issues with uh, with Hurricane Sandy. We're looking at putting those in more stores because for us, um, the affordability, availability, reliability of energy, all of those are so critically important. So we look at technologies that we can put in that can keep us up and running because it's a significant deal for a community. If Walmart's closed, that has a significant impact on a community because there's not that many days that they can um, not go and get fresh milk and, and bread and food that they need to, to, um, to handle their families. Or if the power's out, you could just open the doors, let them help themselves, but that's probably not good. For the <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a group of companies, ultimately this comes around to policy. Corporations can, can do these sorts of things, but ultimately a lot of people think that really some pretty strong government policy signals, and I know you're in, Walmart's involved in policy in certain areas. There's a group of uh, large corporations, including Unilever, Nestle, Starbucks, uh, Adidas, Nike, General Motors, and Intel, who've come out, signed a declaration saying the U.S. needs to do more on a policy level to get serious about climate change, because as we've been discussing, it's not happening fast enough. What would it take for Walmart to sign on to something like that and say, yes, the government needs to do more? It's a little bit dicey because they're not clear what they want the government to do. do. It's vague. Yeah, so it's interesting because Walmart as a company, I mean, we have a bias to take action. I think that's just inherent in retail. So we've been focusing on things that we can do, impact that we can have, actions that we can be, that we can make. At the same time, we have been involved in discussions on what that means from a policy standpoint. It's very difficult for us when you have each state telling you that you need to do something a little bit differently or each community even as you go to site a store. And so we have those discussions. Um, I think that in order for us to to um, get more specific in the kind of policy that we need, we would have to spend the time to, to start to figure out the solution. We're involved in those dialogues. It hasn't happened yet. We've tried to join as many of those forums as we can to move that along, but we're um, a little bit more tangible than that, and so I think that we're looking for specific things, but we're involved in the dialogue, and I don't specifically know um, enough about that particular initiative to say why we would or wouldn't do that at it's this time. Very- very general. It's just saying, hey, hello, we need to do more faster. Aaron Kramer, the, the importance of uh, more policy action and corporates in support of that. Well, well I, I do think it's very important, and I think um, action is important. Look, we live in a, a global economy where companies like Walmart operate, you know, at least via supply chains almost everywhere in the world. And you have national governments, by and large, that actually don't operate around the world. So there's a mismatch right now because we're talking about global issues like like climate change and, and taking care of, of the oceans and so on that are global issues, international issues. We don't have policy structures to address them. Companies don't have the luxury of just standing back saying, well, we'll just take what we get because there are disruptions and there's a lack of resilience in, in global supply chains. So Companies do have to act, but I think part of that action very often does mean, in essence, stiffening the spine of of governments that, uh, particularly with respect to climate, have been very short-sighted. Business, and, and with some, some justification, gets criticized for thinking only about the short term, the next quarter, and so on. Well, I, I think 
governments can be accused of the same thing. And the next uh, election, the next election. (laughs) And, um, you know, I got asked a few years ago, why did uh, some companies move to the left of the Bush administration on climate? And my answer was they didn't move to the left. They, They moved forward. They moved ahead because the Bush administration, in my view, wasn't thinking ahead about the likely changes that would come with climate change. And businesses, for all the short-term pressures, can't just sit back and let the future happen to them. They have to try to shape it. So I think uh, wise companies consider uh, policy mechanisms that can help to address these things uh, and then go out and compete based on a set of rules that um, are, you know, an ev- a level playing field that companies can can compete on, but which take into account these long-term sustainability issues, which are already hitting us today. And if we don't have stronger action by government, in addition to by business, they're going to hurt even more. Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility. We're talking about sustainable capitalism. Our other guest today at Climate One is Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Walmart. We're going to put a, a audience microphone up here and invite your participation. Uh, if you're over here, we encourage you to walk on that side. And the line begins with our producer, uh, Jane Ann, right there. And uh, while that's happening, give a shout-out to our excellent crew, Adam and Nisha and Eva and Laura and Jane Ann and Andre back there. Um, so we'd like to encourage your participation with one one-part question, and we'll get as many as we can in the 20 minutes we have left with Andrea and Aaron. We're talking about sustainable capitalism at Climate One. Let's have our audience questions. Yes, sir. Welcome. Hi. Um, I wanted to thank Walmart for their concern about military veterans. I'm a Vietnam Air military veteran. Um, I've been interested in sustainable democracy, and unfortunately for the last 30 years, one of my frustrations is, is a lack of feedback regarding a possible method to improve sustainable democracy in the United States. Last year, I decided to create a website that challenges businesses to provide some feedback along with other institutions in the country, and I can't even get feedback about the possibility of creating a website. I would like Walmart to consider helping to support this endeavor to talk about sustainable democracy. Okay, well. Not sure if there's a question in there, but I think, you know. uh, It was a little bit vague for me to answer. But you can basically, you can talk offline. How about that? that Yeah, you guys can talk offline. Okay, that would be great. Thank you. We're talking about uh, sustainable business at Climate One. Welcome. Hi. Good evening, and thank you, both of you. This has been very interesting. My question is for both of you. Um, Walmart sells stuff, and I'm sure all the companies you work with sell stuff as well. But as part of your sustainability, are you looking at or are you taking back stuff? Plastic bags, plastic bottles, broken computers to recycle or to... Um, get out of the dump with some creative way. Andrew Thomas? Just that gets to the whole who's responsible for the stuff, right. the manufacturers, the retailer, or the people who buy it. Right. So we do take back some things, and, um, and it's an interesting question because we also kind of look at the front end as well. So I'll go plastic bags first, and then I'll, I'll address some of the other specifics that you brought up. One of the ways that we feel like we can really help on plastic bags is not only taking them back, which we do in our stores, but also in the first place, offering um, ways that you cannot not um, use them in the first place. So through bags that you can bring back, reminding people to bring bags back. So as a global corporation, we made a commitment to reduce our plastic bag um, use by 33%. And um, we just accomplished that. And we actually got up to 38% that we were able to reduce it. So that's the front end. That's measured from the front end of us handing them out, which means that there's less to recycle in, in the first place. So there's lots of different ways that globally we were able to accomplish that. But um, that's one example of something that and just done. one interjection there. California, there's been some bans at the city mm-hmm. level. Do you get involved in those fights about banning or putting a price on plastic bags? Or is that, do you have a, not have a so, dog in that So the, the way that we do it is we're actually just looking for what the solution would be because we want to serve our customers the best way we can. So we have stores that are in communities that have plastic bag bans, and we know you know what, we're, what we need to do in those stores. We have stores. We have pretty much every solution. We're piloting 
piloting somewhere in the globe because that's kind of an example of where regulations get pretty specific. And yeah. so we don't necessarily have a dog in the fight other than we want to provide our, our customers what they need, and we have a lot of different ways that we can do that. Um, when it comes to recycling other things, um, there are specific programs that we have in the store of taking back. Um, we have Walmart.com is a way that we can take things back without um, impacting store operations. One of the tricky things for our operations that are different than some of the other stores is we also sell food. And so if you think about, you know, taking things back, where you store it, where you're bringing food item in, food items in, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to consider that are different than maybe what some other retailers need to consider. So we're working on all of those things as well. We also support um, programs like we have a, a um a partnership with the Goodwill and with other organizations that also have ways to, to take back and, and recycle and um, these types of things as well. So it's a complicated question, and we're absolutely in um, in the discussions and, and doing a lot in that area, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to figure out ways that we can do more. Aaron Kramer? You know, one person's waste is another person's raw material, and the concept of so-called upcycling is getting a lot of attention. You know, a couple of examples, the, the, the household products company Method has produced some of its containers from the plastic floating around in the, in the oceans, and there is a lot of plastic floating around in the oceans. Nike made its uh, World Cup soccer uniforms out of plastic bottles the, the last time around, and they're extending that. Uh, much further. There's a lot of talk about uh, urban mining because we actually have a lot of minerals that are sitting vacant having been disposed of over time and you may have small-scale miners just like you have small-scale solar uh, installations and so on. So there are a lot of people looking for the business opportunities here and I think ultimately that that may unlock a, a lot of really interesting possibilities that start to create what for many people is the holy grail here, which is closed-loop manufacturing, that you can continue to generate additional products but without using any additional national re- natural resources and without contributing to the mountains of waste that are out there. Yeah, we've got some closed-loop products in our store. So we use hangers and bottles to produce some of the pet um, beds that we have. Our pizza box for market-side pizza box is made out of the corrugate that they take from the stores. And so we've gotten to a point that 81% of what used to go into a landfill is no longer going to a, into a landfill of the waste that we produce in our stores, and we're working on getting that to 100%, so zero waste in the stores. Another good money-saving business operation. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, I'm Bridget Luther, and I run the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. So Aaron was giving me a nice little run-up there on the closed loops and the new book by uh, Dr. Brungart and Bill McDonough, The Upcycle, where they sort of say, come on, let's do it. But I wanted to, Andrea, you know, we've been involved with the Sustainability Consortium. You sort of flew over that a little bit, but I feel like that's a success story where Walmart was really leading the way. And do you see this sort of upcycle coming into some of the discussions at the Sustainability Consortium? And maybe you could also talk a little bit about uh, the leadership and where you are with that. It's kind of been a long process, and I know people felt like it wasn't really going to really move and just wanted to hear your perspective on where you are with all the different 150 sectors, right, trying all, all with different measurements and those kinds of things and what's next and where you see Walmart sort of charging forward with your stuff and making it better for people and planet. Let's do that quickly so we can get to some other questions. Uh Um, So very quickly, the Sustainability Consortium was um, an organization that Walmart was instrumental in starting because we wanted to do this from an industry perspective. Because actually if Walmart tried to do something out, you know, different than other retailers and manufacturers were doing something in it with a different approach, we could actually have the opposite effect. We could create inefficiencies and um, make things less sustainable. And 
And so um, it was a big undertaking. We now have 115 organizations that include academia, NGOs, um, manufacturers, and retailers. And we're making a lot of progress now. I mean, we have tangible output in 200 categories of, you know, what are the the biggest, we call them hot spots, but the biggest areas of focus. And I think a natural evolution of that is to um, convene those that organization, the people that are members of that organization, to addressing the hot spots that go across multiple categories. And that's something that we're already doing um, in areas like fertilizer or recycled content or food waste or some of those areas. And I think it's a natural extension for the sustainability consortium to start working in that area. It's something that the membership, um, I think, is is interested, but there's a, a big meeting actually next week where the whole organization gets together and that will be one of the topics. I think I'll just close that topic with just saying it's interesting for Walmart. Um, our approach to this has been non-competitive. And for us to sit in these big meetings with our competitors talking about things that we need to do together is something that um, I think is a, is a great thing and good for us as an organization in the area of sustainability and should demonstrate our commitment to sustainability because it's not natural for a business to to just share that openly with competition. Let's have our next audience question for Andrea Thomas and uh, Aaron Kramer. Hi, this has been a great panel. Um, really great to see everything Walmart's doing uh, in the area of sustainability. I had a couple questions, one for Aaron, one for Andrea. Um, for Aaron, the question is, um, as e-commerce grows uh, relative to uh, in-store retail, how do you see that changing the equation for sustainability? Uh is it better for the retailer and, and, of course, how is it for the consumer and, and for the world in general? And then for Andrea, um, how does what's Walmart's position on cap and trade and um, is what you're doing partly because you're putting a price, uh, price on carbon today uh, based on a future hypothetical price point that we might have for based on cap and trade? Let's take those first. Uh, Aaron, all that e-commerce, those big boxes with a little product inside that comes from Amazon and others, how's that working out? Well, if, if distribution works efficiently, it, it can actually be a net positive. But I think the question in part depends on whether uh, e-commerce just leads to purchasing more things that people don't actually need, as, as we talked about a little earlier. And, and it does enable that. So I think that's the jury's out, in a sense, to determine what behavior goes along with the tool of e-commerce. One thing that's interesting, and there's actually a Walmart alum who has started an interesting company here in the Bay Area called Yurtle, which is designed to be both a sharing site where you can put something out there for someone else to get at no cost. And if that doesn't work, you know, something you can buy something. I, I think it's via another uh, e-commerce provider, uh, which I won't mention here tonight. But um, uh, so that's kind of interesting because it's a hybrid model. But the future belongs to multi-channel retail. There's there's absolutely no doubt about it. So that's what we will be experiencing. There'll be bricks and mortar. There will also be e-commerce. And we have to figure out how to make make the combination work as sustainably as possible. Because that, that's that's the model we will have. Now, Andrew Thomas, on pricing carbon pollution, cap and trade, or another mechanism, where is Walmart on that? Yeah, it's interesting. We're not um, waiting for a resolution from the government on exactly all how that accounting um, works. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. That, that's not that's not um, <laughs> keeping us from thinking about it. It really fits quite nicely with. Um, with efficiency, which is something that drives us day in and day out. And so I think understanding what we're paying for, how to do it more efficiently will help prepare us for whatever the outcome is of the discussions around cap and trade. But um, it's something that we're focusing more just from a business productivity standpoint. But Aaron Kramer mentioned earlier that some oil companies, Shell Oil, Conoco, they have shadow prices. They're basically saying there's going to be a price on this someday. We don't know when. I mean, does Walmart think there will be a price on carbon pollution at some point? You know, it's so interesting. There's so many puts and takes in every um, P&L of every product and we carry, you know, we profit work, and loss, yeah. profit, sorry, profit and loss. And, you know, we have 
10,000 stores and 100,000 suppliers who also have suppliers. And so we don't keep a separate, separate book because that would just be insane with our scale. But we know about what goes into the cost of sales of the items. And so um, it's not something that it's much more integrated right so now in the way that we're approaching That explains it. why you don't have a, a shadow price, which I understand. You think that there will be a global price or a U.S. price on carbon at some point in your lifetime. <laughs> I, I don't know enough about that to, to answer that. I know energy is um, something that will continue. I have to believe costs will continue to go up. And I think that a lot of, you know, as things become more scarce, obviously pricing adjusts to that. We see that every day. I mean, there's a lot of the items that we sell in our stores that the pricing fluctuates rapidly based on what happens with the weather. So we're already dealing with a lot of that and a lot of the products that we sell. So we have a capability around that that we'll be able to, uh, to easily, I think, um, address. So that volatility comes. for sure. Let's have our, our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, thank you. Um, this may be a natural follow-up to that last thing, which is um, given the importance of, of 90% you were saying of the footprint is in the supply chain rather than the rest, um, and then the connection with that to policy, um, absent some sort of internal shadow pricing, internal carbon pricing, how is it? how can a company with supply chain as large as Walmart help but undermine any attempt by individual nations to try carbon pricing schemes on their own. If if China rolls one out, then, of course, any suppliers who are not in China will suddenly have a massive cost advantage for all the energy that they're using in their production. Um, Without Walmart taking an affirmative stand on that, how can you not be helping to undermine any attempts of individual nations to try to do that on their own? That's a in, interesting way to think about that. I mean, what I can tell you is that each of our businesses around the world, so we're in 26 countries and, and we operate sometimes in regions, sometimes in, in countries, each of them are um, prepared to address the challenges and we share best practices across the globe. Um, we don't set out to undermine anything, but there's so much volatility that if you make an assumption that something's going to go a certain way, it's just as likely that it can go a different way. So our approach has been um, more to address the issues as they come up, anticipate what we're going to have to be prepared to do as other issues come up. But um, we... As far as just spending time, there's so many different things. It's hard to express the scale of the company if you don't see from the inside. There are so many things that we would need to address that it just is not something that um, we spend as much time on as probably other companies that are focused on a particular supply chain or a particular um, industry. Aaron Kramer? This is one area where there may not be first mover advantage, but but there is a lot of activity taking place. And there's a widespread recognition that actually the, the accounting measures that we use to, to, to measure economic success are broken. And all of the big four accounting firms have, uh, have essentially acknowledged this. You've got one company with, I think, more to follow. This is Puma, the sportswear company has put together what it calls an environmental profit and loss. It's a very crude tool, but they've estimated that their results would have been 150 million euros worse off if they uh, took account for all of the costs of, of, of the natural resources that are used that currently go unpriced. This gets very technical very fast, but the main point is that I think there is a growing recognition that this is important to tackle, but it, it's hard for a single company really to do it. And, and I should say, Puma is doing this as a demonstration project. They're not, uh, you know, their shareholders aren't, aren't penalized and, and, and so on. They're just trying to make the point that we need to think about how we measure economic performance a little bit differently. And, and I'd say that that view is, is growing in acceptance by the day. And I'll just mention that Microsoft has an internal price on carbon pollution inside the company where they, the energy users have to pay for the carbon pollution that they create. That's an internal price at Microsoft. Next question, please. Welcome. Hi. Um, this is a somewhat of a follow-up question on a larger scale. So we've just talked about the coordination problems within a company. You look at the UN's efforts with their uh, climate change uh, conventions, the Rio conference and all of that. 
Um, Craig mentioned earlier, uh, are we doing enough fast enough? And I'd just be interested in your personal opinion. Are we going to make it? Like, you, you read um, Jared Diamond's collapse and things like that, and humanity doesn't have a good track record of recognizing in time that they're going to steer. And you, yeah, Aaron, you mentioned uh, 400 parts per million was just exceeded for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, do you think, that, just your personal opinion, do you think that we'll be able to recognize the dangers broadly as a civilization and prioritize it enough to avert wide-scale climate change, you know, massive disasters, the, you know, all the stuff that goes in all the movies we watch uh, or, or not. Aaron Kramer? Well, if you think about the challenge in its broadest sense, it's a little daunting. You know, there's no record in human history of all the civilization on the planet banding together to take action to prevent a problem that's still largely out in the future. That is very distressing. But then I think there's reason for optimism because um, there are companies, Walmart and, and many others, there are a lot of NGOs, there are some, some public figures, public officials who are trying to get their arms around it. And it's not just Greenpeace. You know, the World Bank has, has stated the urgency of the challenge to address climate change. The International Energy Agency, which is, is an energy industry body primarily, has been sounding the alarm. So there, there is a change in thinking, but none of us knows the future, and we don't know how quickly we'll act, and we're already seeing uh, the impacts of climate change today. So that suggests that uh, the clock is ticking and we need, we need to move faster. And we've got to wrap up really quickly here, too. So let's have one last question. Welcome. Okay. Um, I'll just ask Aaron in the interest of time because you can answer regarding a bunch of companies. Um, I'm wondering how much, well, to the extent that companies' attitudes towards sustainability and practices and policies vary by country, I'm wondering how much um, laws of other countries are dictating those decisions and how much it might be you know, subscribing to voluntary standards or voluntary principles or how much it's public perception if people in a certain country seem to care about green products, then maybe that's a more important decision. Oh, all big, the above. Big, yeah, big topic yeah. for a closer, so here, uh, we're going to test you, Aaron. Look, in a, in a lot of places, the laws on the books are really great, and they're completely ignored, and that's a big problem. If we could wave, if I could wave a wand today and, and do one thing, it, it would actually be to, to ask that the laws that are already on the books around the world got applied fairly and consistently, and that would make a massive, massive uh, improvement in the situation. I'm going to close briefly by just bringing it home to each of you. Uh, Andrea Thomas, uh, there was tremendous droughts in Arkansas this year. Uh, cattle ranchers had to sell their herds because they couldn't feed them. It snowed in Arkansas in May. I'm still trying to understand that. I kind of know where <laughs> Arkansas is. It snowed in Arkansas in May. Uh, how do you think climate disruption will affect your state, your family, your business? Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because I think that um, for the most part, people are very resilient and they um, react to situations by innovating, by thinking of new ways to do it. I think it's harder when you get to a very specific region, when you kind of open it up a little bit more broadly. I think, you know, people adjust and and. I feel like people are starting to connect the dots more than they did before, which will help more people get engaged in the solutions. And um, I feel like it's critical. Action is critical. And you have to start acting. And this is something that, that Walmart does all the time. We start and then we adjust. We don't sit and try to figure out the perfect solution before we start acting. And I think that that's something that um, could hold true for everybody. Start acting as you get more information adjust to that, but be part of the solution. Aaron Kramer? I, I think that's absolutely right, and I'll end, end on a, a note of hope. We're also going to see a lot of progress on sustainability from things that have absolutely nothing to do inherently with sustainability. So if we're entering the era of big data, we're going to have visibility into so many more things that will allow us to make better decisions faster and inform the kinds of bias for action that we've heard Andrea talking about. So uh, that's something that gives me a little additional hope uh, outside of policy processes that may make a real difference. As long as that big data is not fired by coal. Uh, but we have to end it there. Uh, our thanks to Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Walmart, and Aaron Kramer, CEO of Business for Social Responsibility. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming today to Climate One. <laughs>